Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. You can also find us online at iTunes, and while you're there, please leave a rating, leave a comment. Uh, it really helps us out. So today, I am delighted to be joined by Rena Patani, who is a general internist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Hey, Rena, how's it going? Good, how are you? Excellent, and I suppose I should also introduce myself. I'm a Mulverm, I'm a resident in internal medicine, and uh, if you don't know that by now, this is your first episode to the rounds table, so welcome. Uh, so... Today, Rena and I are going to be talking about two topics as always, and uh, then we're going to end with our good stuff segment, bringing you short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So our two topics are, first, the Improve It study looking at ezetimibe added to statin therapy after acute coronary syndromes, and then we're going to look at a network meta-analysis. Yes, we're going to wade into the dangerous world of methodology there and talk a little bit about blood pressure lowering treatments in patients who have diabetes and chronic kidney disease. So Rena, why don't you get us started and tell me a little bit about the Improve It study looking at ezetimibe and statins. Great, thanks Amol. So this was a paper that was published in the New England Journal on June 3rd and just to open with the bottom line, it found that the addition of ezetimibe to moderate dose statins after an acute coronary syndrome improves the LDL profile for patients and has the potential to reduce cardiovascular events. So just to provide a bit of background on the imperative for doing this study, as we know, statins are widely accepted as being um, standard of care for patients in order to lower LDL levels and to improve cardiovascular outcomes in people who either have a history of cardiovascular disease or don't, um, depending on their baseline risk profile. And part of that is thought to be mediated by the inhibition of HMG-CoA reductase. But um, the beneficial effects of statins have often been thought to extend beyond that. In fact, there's been this sort of statin exceptionalism, if you will, um, where there's thoughts that other pathways, including stabilization of endothelium, increased nitrous oxide availability, and reduced inflammation might actually be um, contributing to their beneficial effects um, and reduction in cardiovascular events. However, despite the many trials that show a benefit with statins, it's clear that statins are not, they're not without their downside. So um, there are many side effects which can limit the dose titration upwards that's often required to get an appropriate benefit. And um, there are still residual events that occur among patients who are on maximal therapy with statins. So on this basis, there's been a, a desire to search for new drugs, new drugs or adjunct drugs that might um, further improve benefits seen in the population. Recently, azitamibe has been a drug that's been gaining some attention. It's been shown to reduce LDL by decreasing cholesterol absorption through the intestine, and its effect has been in reducing LDL as much as almost 25%. Um, however, despite the fact that it's been beneficial in improving LDL profiles, a recent meta-analysis of azitamibe monotherapy did not show an actual improvement in clinical outcomes. So this study strove to look at whether the addition of azitamide to moderate-dose simvastatin might actually be of benefit. Okay, and so I guess this speaks to a couple of things. One is sort of the central importance of LDL lowering and whether that's the key as you talked about or whether it's this sort of pleiotropic effect of statins. And then also um, whether azetamibe itself as an agent can be effective in improving outcomes. And so it sounds like what we knew about azetamide before this study was that 
it lowers LDL, but we were uncertain as to whether it actually improved important clinical outcomes. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why this study in particular is being referred to as being quite landmark because um, it's actually showing that benefit in clinical outcomes. Um, but so, but let's be honest, there are gradations and landmarks. So here's the question. Are we talking like Eiffel Tower or are we talking, you know, like Sky Dome? And so I, maybe by the end we'll come up with a, like how landmark is this trial really? I'm I, my antennas are up as to sort of I guess I've been an azetamib skeptic skeptic for a long time. I think that's a fair comment. I think it's landmark because it's the first to show an actual clinical improvement with its addition. However, um, the extent to which it's actually going to be practice changing, I think, will will be limited on the basis of things that we're soon to discuss. Okay. So what uh, what did these investigators do? What was the study? Tell me. Sure. So basically, they, they sought out patients, both men and women, who were at least 50 years of age and who had been hospitalized within the last 10 days for an acute coronary syndrome. Um, and these patients had to have an LDL, I'll use SI units, that was greater than 1.3 millimoles per liter, but um, was at a maximum of 3.2 millimoles per liter if they weren't already on therapy or a maximum of 2.6 millimoles per liter if they were already on therapy. So just to highlight that actually the LDL um, window at baseline was actually quite narrow. These were quite low um, baseline Mm. levels of LDL. They excluded patients who had a planned cabbage, who had reduced renal function, liver disease, or who were already on a statin dose that was more potent than what they were aiming to use for this study, which was the equivalent of simvastatin at 40 milligrams daily. So the study was randomized, double-blind. The intervention arm um, gave patients simvastatin 40 milligrams daily and azitamide 10 milligrams daily, while the control arm received simvastatin at the same dose and placebo. And so, so can I? So just to summarize um, for myself, so these were patients with acute coronary syndrome who had moderately low levels of lipids. They had to already have sort of relatively decent lipid control and the range was somewhere like 1.3 to 3 or something like that in our SI units, right? So, um, and were already on a statin, but not at, or could have been on a statin, but not at a high dose of the statin. That's exactly right. So effectively people who had like decent cholesterol control beforehand. That's exactly right. And I guess they're really trying to get at the question of does azetamibe add additional benefit on, for people who already have decent cholesterol control? That's exactly right. Okay. So they plan to follow up the patients clinically and biochemically, first at 30 days post-randomization, then at four months, and then every four months thereafter. And they had ongoing follow-up for a minimum of 2.5 years and until they reached a target event rate, a target event number of 5,250. Um, it should be noted that if patients had LDLs that persisted greater than 2.0 while they were in either of the study groups, then the physicians were permitted to uptitrate the simvastatin to a dose of 80 milligrams daily. However, in 2011, the FDA recommended against um, simvastatin being prescribed at that dose. And so thereafter, that practice was halted, and patients who had only been on that higher dose for less than a year were returned to that 40 milligram dose daily. Um, and if, despite all of that, there, the targets for LDL were not um, met, then physicians were um, encouraged to just remove the study drug and um, optimize the lipid control for the patient. So in terms of what they were interested in, the primary outcome in this disease was, um, not unsurprisingly, a composite outcome of death from cardiovascular disease, major coronary event, which included a a non-fatal MI, unstable angina, revascularization within greater than 30 days after enrollment, and non-fatal stroke. 
And then there were a series of secondary efficacy outcomes, which were all as well composite um, endpoints. And I won't go into the details just for the sake of clarity. And an intention to treat analysis was employed. Okay. And so what did they find? So the average, so in terms of the patients, they ended up recruiting over 18,000 patients spanning over a thousand sites in 39 countries. Um, and the groups were largely comparable. Um, so just to give you a snapshot of what an average patient looked like, an average patient was 64 years old, male, about 75%, white, about 85%, um, and the majority really were within North America and Western Europe. About 85% of the patients had undergone a diagnostic cath, and over 70% required PCI. So um, that kind of tells you what, that, what an average patient looked like and what types of interventions they had, the fact that it was largely evidence-based. Okay, perfect. And it was acute coronary syndromes. How many of them were ST elevation MIs versus non-ST elevation versus unstable angina? Yeah, so the most um, prominent subgroup was um, patients who presented with an NSTEMI. That was almost 50% of the group. Okay. The mean LDL in each of these groups, by the way, was about 2.4 um, millimoles per liter at baseline. Um, and after a median of about six years, um, it's important to note that over 40% of the patients had discontinued whatever study arm they, uh, the drug in whatever study arm they had been assigned to. So that's also quite consistent with other lipid trials, and it amounts to about a 7% drop-off um, in terms of using the therapy as prescribed per year, so not insignificant. So in terms of the results, um, at one year, the LDL was in fact lowered in the combination group in contrast to monotherapy with um, an achievement of about 1.4 millimoles per liter in the combination group in contrast to 1.8 millimoles per liter, um, and that was significant. And most importantly, in terms of clinical outcomes, with regards to the primary endpoint, um, there was an absolute risk reduction of 2% among patients who were on dual therapy. So just to give you the exact numbers, for patients on combination therapy, about 32.7% had the primary endpoint, whereas 34.7% of patients on monotherapy simvastatin um, had a achieved the primary endpoint. And that result was also statistically significant, although the benefit really only appeared after one year. So for every 50 patients you put on azetamibe in addition to statin therapy, you prevent this composite primary endpoint by one. Yes, you're exactly right. It's the number needed to treat at 50. With regards to safety considerations, there was no significant difference between both groups, and there were equal numbers of uh, patients who had discontinued the drug in both groups, as I mentioned before. Okay, so it's, I mean, impressive in the sense that this is the first time that we're seeing ezetimibe has effect on hard clinical outcomes. I'm sure one of the secondary analyses was looking at mortality alone or MIs alone. Was there any bene benefit in those specific yeah, in terms of the only ter tertiary endpoints, which were each of the individual outcomes that showed a significant benefit, was the occurrence of any MI, um, the occurrence of a fatal MI, the occurrence of ischemic stroke, and the need for urgent revascularization at more than 30 days. And all of those were around 1.5% reductions or less. Okay. So any key limitations to either the generalizability of this study or the methodology? You mentioned in your introduction that there were a few changes to the study protocol as they went along and that kind of thing. So any, any key limitations here? Yeah, I mean, so I think one important limitation is that this is a very specific study population. So as noted, they were predominantly male, predominantly white, and they were patients who at baseline already had um, fairly reasonable LDLs. So we were talking about um, quite a specific intervention group. Um, and moreover, this was really in a setting of secondary prevention. 
Um, another important limitation is the fact that 42% of the patients in the entire study discontinued the drug with equal numbers in each of the intervention groups. And that really um, is Im important for us to recognize because part of the motivation for looking for a second drug or an adjunct drug is the concern that there are um, limitations on uptitration of statins because of side effects. And so if, in general, azitamide itself is not being well tolerated, then that's, that's not much of an added benefit. Okay. And... And the other problem is that, um, as mentioned, many patients weren't actually receiving the high-intensity dose of statin in the first place, which is generally standard of care. And so um, this wasn't really comparing maximal therapy of statin with, uh, plus placebo with statin and azitamide. So um, they're not representative necessarily of the type of patients we would care for in day-to-day -day practice. Okay, so conclusion time. Are you convinced? What, what do you take away from this? So I think one interesting um, comment that's emerging around this paper is the idea that maybe it's time to um, put away the, the quote-unquote LDL hypothesis and really now replace it with an LDL principle, which is um, the idea that LDL lowering in and of itself, regardless of the mechanism by which you do that, can actually work towards improving cardiovascular outcomes. Because certainly azitamide is not known to have many of the quote-unquote pleiotrophic effects of statins, and yet um, it did, um, as an adjunct, improve outcomes in this patient population. So this study hasn't really answered the question of whether it's better to just strive for high-dose statin therapy, monotherapy, or to use moderate-dose statin therapy and azitamide. And arguably, if a patient is tolerating high-dose statin therapy, maybe it simply is better to stick with that. Okay, yeah. I, this is certainly not going to change my individual practice, but I don't see a lot of these post-ACS patients, so maybe some cardiologists might change their practice. It'll be curious to see how this creeps its way into guidelines. I think at least it tells us there's more options. If a patient can't go up on maximal therapy of a statin, at least we know there's other ways to still help them derive benefit. Okay. All right. Thanks so much, Rena. Let's change gears a little bit. We're still in the cardiovascular realm this week. So why don't we talk about net, a network meta-analysis that was just published in The Lancet about blood pressure lowering treatments in patients who have diabetes and chronic kidney disease. The one-line summary is that this network meta-analysis showed that no blood pressure lowering strategy was effective in prolonging survival in patients with diabetes and kidney disease, and that ACE inhibitors and ARBs, angiotensin receptor blockers, were the most effective medications in preventing progression to end-stage renal disease requiring dialysis. So Amol, before we get into the details of the trial, can you tell us a bit about network meta-analysis? Sure, so I'll do my best. So this is an emerging methodology I think that we're seeing increasingly in uh, the medical literature. The principle is really to examine conditions where multiple interventions have been studied to treat the same problem across a number of studies. And so this is a method to analyze the relative merits of multiple interventions. Importantly, it allows estimation of comparative effectiveness of interventions that haven't been compared in head-to-head -head studies. And so the way they do this is they imagine various studies like a network, an interconnected web, and each treatment is a node in that web. And so some treatments have been compared against each other, and that's the direct evidence in the web of comparative effectiveness. 
Some treatments have been compared against a common other treatment or a common other comparator. So for example, multiple studies or multiple treatments might have been compared against placebo, for example. And so a network meta-analysis uses this indirect evidence of relative effectiveness by saying that if A is better than B and B is better than C, then A is better than C. So that kind of transitive property. So the important thing about these this web of studies that you could imagine is that the more connected the nodes are, the more reliable the evidence is. So the more comparators you have, uh, the more reliable the evidence. And it's important to recognize that in that web, some treatments might be overrepresented. There may be a lot of studies about one therapy and others are really underrepresented. And so the evidence is not necessarily uniform across the various treatments that are studied. Comparisons between treatments that are not well connected or if the studies are in very different populations or if the results are heterogeneous, then you really need to interpret the results with caution. So that's kind of like the overall summary of what a network meta-analysis is at a very high level. Does that make sense? It does. That sounds really cool. So um, with regards to the current clinical, the current research question, can you tell us a bit about what's known? Yeah, so this study is really looking at diabetes and chronic kidney disease. So this is important, obviously, because diabetes is very common and an important condition, and because chronic kidney disease affects 25 to 40% of patients who have diabetes. And diabetes is the leading cause of end-stage renal disease. Nearly 50% of patients with dialysis have uh, diabetes as the cause of their di dialysis. Blood pressure management is a key aspect in the care of these patients. So if you look at guidelines from around the world, they really focus heavily on vascular protection, blood pressure lowering agents, and specifically first line treatment that's recommended are ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers as first line. Some other guidelines, like for example, the Canadian Diabetes Association recommends calcium channel blockers as the preferred combination therapy. So if you're gonna add a second agent to an ACE inhibitor, they suggest adding a calcium channel blocker, largely on the results of a study which was the accomplished trial. But importantly, there have been a very limited number of actually head-to-head -head analyses of all the various types of blood pressure lowering treatments. Most of the focus has been on placebo-controlled trials. And so this study undertook a network meta-analysis to combine all of the various treatments for blood pressure lowering in patients with diabetes and chronic kidney disease and try to get some evidence about the comparative effectiveness and the overall effect of these treatments on patient outcomes. So can you tell us a bit about the methods for this study? Yeah, so this was a network meta-analysis. They included controlled clinical trials of adult patients who had both diabetes and chronic kidney disease according to the standardized definition of chronic kidney disease based on creatinine clearance. And they looked at trials that compared orally administered blood pressure lowering agents with other agents or with placebo. The primary outcomes were either all-cause mortality or end-stage renal disease, and then they looked at a bunch of other secondary outcomes. So what did they find? So they included 157 studies, which had data for 43,000-odd participants. The mean age of these patients was about 52 and a half years. Importantly, most of the studies included patients that had overt proteinuria or macroalbuminuria. So they had proteinuric kidney disease, 
Um, and fewer of the studies included had patients with microalbuminuria, and that's an important limitation of the study. Most of the studies were a one-on-one -on -one comparison of drugs with either ACE inhibitors or placebo. So ACE inhibitor was by far the most studied in this group, certainly overrepresented compared to some of the other uh, drugs which were underrepresented. When you're doing this kind of a meta-analysis, you want to talk a little bit about how consistent the findings were across studies and specifically looking at the term of heterogeneity. And they found moderate heterogeneity between studies. And the kind of thing that we're, we're talking about really sort of two principles. One is were the results different across the various studies? And they found that to a moderate extent, the results did differ across these studies. Some studies found that the treatments were beneficial. Other studies found that the treatments were not beneficial. So not all the studies moved in the same direction, suggesting that maybe these results are mixed and the, the proof in one direction is less strong. And the other type of thing that comes up in a network meta-analysis is whether there's a difference between direct evidence and indirect evidence. So remember, direct evidence is when there was a direct comparison between two drugs, and indirect evidence is when there was a comparison between a drug and a similar comparator. And they found, by and large, the direct and indirect evidence matched up. So I want to talk about three main buckets of endpoints. So the first was mortality. They found that there was no blood pressure lowering strategy that was significantly better than placebo for mortality, which is, I think, a little surprising. I would agree. They did find that uh, the highest ranked strategy, so the, one of the things you can do in the network meta-analysis is rank the, the different treatments, and the highest ranked strategy was the combination of ACE inhibitor and calcium channel blocker, which showed an, a signal perhaps towards benefit in mortality, but didn't actually improve mortality. There was no statistically significant improvement. The second question was around end-stage kidney disease and need for dialysis. So what they found was that, interestingly, the combination of ACE inhibitor and angiotensin receptor blocker was the most beneficial at preventing progression to end-stage kidney disease. They also found that ARB monotherapy uh, was significantly better than placebo, and ACE inhibitors ranked highly in preventing progression to end-stage kidney disease. To put some of these numbers in absolute terms, here's what they found. They found that if you took 1,000 adults with diabetes and chronic kidney disease and gave them a combination of an ACE inhibitor and an angiotensin rece receptor blocker for one year, you would prevent 14 patients from developing end-stage kidney disease, but this would result in 55 patients developing acute kidney injury and 135 individuals developing hyperkalemia hypotassium. So certainly there's some safety concerns around that. If you look at treatment with the angiotensin receptor blocker alone, over 1,000 patients over one year, you would prevent 11 cases of end-stage kidney disease, so basically one in 100, uh, but you would lead to acute kidney injury in 17 patients and hyperkalemia in 70 patients. So I guess a tough risk-benefit situation. Yeah, exactly. And then the last thing to just mention is that the data around safety is very difficult to really draw with any degree of reliability from this study because the treatment effects were imprecise. There was a lot of heterogeneity. Uh, and so, you know, we need to take all of that with a grain of salt. Fair enough. So were there any other important limitations that you wanted to highlight? Yeah. So I think the main limitations here is that I mentioned that 
you've imagine the network as an interconnected web and that the more dense the connections are between the treatment interventions, the more comparisons you have, the stronger it was. So there were a lot of strong comparisons for ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, and calcium channel blockers, but much less evidence for the other antihypertensive agents, beta blockers, diuretics. So we have to draw those conclusions about the other medications with a little bit of caution. They also had very poor data about cardiovascular outcomes. So although they had all-cause mortality, the data around whether these medications prevented myocardial infarction or stroke, uh, much less well-documented. And that's a really important limitation uh, because arguably hypertension control is really for things like stroke and MI, right? Absolutely. Uh, and then uncertain about generalizing to patients who don't have overt proteinuria, as I mentioned, because that's mostly the patients who are included here. So those, those are, the, I think, the major limitations. So are you convinced about any of the findings here? Because as you mentioned, some of them are surprising and some of them contradict existing guidelines. Yeah, so here I think are the main conclusions uh, to take away. So the ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blockers are both good and first line for patients with chronic kidney disease and diabetes in order to prevent progression to end-stage renal disease and dialysis. I think we knew that before. It corroborates what we already knew. It, they don't provide mortality benefit. That's surprising to me and I guess interesting, but doesn't really change my practice, right? Because there's all yeah. these other outcomes are equally, I would say, you know, important. Important, like, important. Absolutely. If not equally important, certainly very important. Um, they identified that ACE inhibitors and calcium channel blocker combination is promising. I think we kind of knew that as mm -hmm. well, but that this requires more study. And then this is, I think, perhaps the most provocative finding, which is the combination of ACE inhibitor and angiotensin receptor blocker was the most effective at preventing uh, progression to end-stage kidney disease. Now that combination had sort of fallen out of favor by and large because of safety concerns. And I have to say, I'm not totally convinced, you know, that this is the best way to say that this is a safe treatment. These are all randomized clinical trials. We know that, you know, in a real world population, the safety concerns are perhaps going to be more pronounced. Um, but it might put the combination back on the table and see whether that's, you know, up for debate again. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think so long as we recognize that it was, as you mentioned, the, the macroalbuminuria um, Group subgroup of patients who had macroalbuminuria. So perhaps people would be more reticent to apply that dual therapy in patients who weren't as sick necessarily and had microalbuminuria. Yeah. And then it reinforces the important point that monotherapy with any other antihypertensive agent, you know, beta blocker, alpha blocker, anything, should not be used in these patients. So to summarize, your diabetes patients, put them on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. Uh, if you need to add a second agent and you have any safety concerns, a calcium channel blocker is probably the best second choice. But if you're having trouble controlling their proteinuria, you're confident about their follow-up, and you're really concerned about progression to end-stage kidney disease, the combination of ACE plus ARB might be most effective. Sounds great. Okay. So let's wrap up with our Good Stuff segment. Short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So Rena, tell me what caught your eye from the world of medicine this week? So I wanted to share an essay from um, the BMJ that was posted in early June, um, so just a week ago from the time that we're recording, 
called Justifying Conflicts of Interest in Medical Journals, A Very Bad Idea. It's an essay that was written by three former editors of the New England Journal in response to um, an ill-advised, arguably ill-advised, series on conflict of interest that's recently been published in the New England Journal um, and sparked a lot of controversy. Essentially, the series in the New England Journal was trying to minimize the impact of industry on um, the actions and behaviors of physicians and researchers. And these three prior editors um, really articulate very eloquently why that's a mistake and is a major step backwards. So it's an essay I highly recommend. Yeah, interesting. Definitely a controversial topic. So thanks for that recommendation. So my Good Stuff recommendation is an article on Slate.com where a cancer survivor designs greeting cards that she wishes she'd received from friends and family uh, during her journey with cancer. And they're really neat. They're these beautiful cartoons that she has drawn. And they have sort of frank and honest messages. Things like, for example, I'm really sorry I haven't been in touch. I just didn't know what to say. Or one that says, just so you know, I'm totally on board for driving you to treatment, cleaning your place, helping pick out flattering wigs, coming up with badass visualization exercises. And if you twist my arm, I guess I'd also be cool with lying on the couch and watching trashy TV together. I love you. So I just thought it was really neat um, to look at what one cancer survivor uh, thought were important messages that people had a hard time telling her and uh, wrote some cards to help with that. Yeah, that was a beautiful article. That's a great choice. Okay. Thanks, Rena. Uh, pleasure to chat with you as always, and let's do it again soon. Definitely. Thanks so much.